We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and my witness today on The Meaningful Life is Joe Horton. Joe is a husband, father, and business owner. He hosts the Guild of Dads podcast, which is a weekly interview show dedicated to equipping dads with all the tools, resources, and ideas needed to craft a vision for their own lives. He believes meaning should be at the center of everything we do. Now, Joe's father died in 2015, which was a time of great confusion and pain and started his personal search for meaning. So welcome to The Meaningful Life, Joe. Perhaps you'd like just to tell us a bit more about your father, first of all. Yeah, thanks for having me. Like you said, my journey started in 2015. I'd been kind of trundling along in life, if that's the word. And uh, I get a phone call on a Tuesday morning to say my dad's had the first of two strokes. The first one kind of incapacitated his one side and whatever. And this was on the Tuesday morning. And then on the Wednesday morning, he had a second stroke, which kind of meant that his body began to kind of shut down. And he was kind of checking out of this world, as it were, so to speak. So initially, in the kind of aftermath of that, it forced me to begin to start kind of questioning what I wanted out of life, you know, what I was going to kind of leave on the world and, and, and really began my journey of thinking about what was my life about? What was I put here to do? And was this going to be just it for me? Was just selling industrial equipment as a living going to be it for me? Was it, was this all I was ever going to do or and all I was ever going to be was I reaching my full potential in a number of different areas and that's not to say that my life was horrible because I've got my own business which was doing reasonably well it still is doing reasonably well we had a good standard of living I've got two beautiful children a lovely wife so it's not to say that there's anything you know if you were looking at it from the outside in you'd think well he's doing quite well sort of thing but it's this kind of wrenching feeling in your gut if you like that kind of something is missing but you can't quite articulate what it actually is how old were you at this point i'm 41 now this was five years ago so i was 36 at this point so at 36 we sort of think we know ourselves don't we and then suddenly you're asking these big questions what was the reaction of your friends and family to these questions it started sort of gradually and my turning point if you like was I was listening to a podcast and there was a guy on there who was actually running a mastermind for men. And he told his story as to how things in his life weren't going so great and that he'd almost separated from his wife and stuff. And he was talking about this mastermind, which was basically where you began to work different areas of your life. So you would focus on kind of four key areas. So it would be mental health, physical health, your relationship to others and also your contribution to the world and up until that point i'd only really focused on kind of physical health and i had a dabble in meditation stuff like that but it was the first time that i'd actually been forced to kind of sit down and think about what i actually wanted out of life and where my life was going to go and as part of the unpackaging of where my life was going to go as part of that process i had to do two things which was one was to write my own eulogy and the second thing was to 
write like a vision statement for myself. And I'd never really, you know, this was the first time I'd done anything like this. I actually sat down and thought methodically and systematically about how do I want my health to look? How would I like to take care of my kind of my mental health? What sort of relationships do I want with people? How do I want to show up for my kids? What impact do I want to have on the world? And at that point, it wasn't really that clear for me as to what the biggest torment for me was my kind of contribution to the world. What was I going to leave on the world, if you like? And that became clearer later. (laughs) What do you think your father left in the world then? Because I think that would be something that you would look at when you're trying to decide what you're going to leave yeah i mean my dad was kind of quite a charismatic person so he he was one of these guys that would walk into a room and he could kind of work the room if you like so you know he would be quite at home in any kind of class or group of people if you like from people that were quite well to do in high society to people that were kind of like the man on the street so he was very kind of affable charismatic character but also i'd seen kind of different sides of my dad particularly after my mum died because my mum died when i was 18 which was quite sudden she was hit by a bus in our local town so that was quite shocking and traumatic for for us i was 18 at the time so i saw him go through those kind of dark times when he lost my mum and i discussed this funny enough on a conversation yesterday i think that when you lose one parent often you lose another parent at the same time or they're not the person they used to be so i saw my dad go through this kind of quite traumatic experience at the same time as i was experiencing the trauma of it so that kind of very much kind of framed the two sides to my dad how i saw him as a boy growing up this kind of big strong man that could take on the world sort of thing but then seeing him kind of crumble after my mum passed away and then obviously seeing him kind of deal with that pain, you know, because it, I don't think it ever goes away when you lose someone, particularly in shocking circumstances as or in a sudden way, as you well know. So I saw that whole thing unfold before my kind of very eyes at the same time as trying to kind of grapple with my own existence from kind of an early age, I suppose. Yeah, because losing one parent makes you question life. There's no nothing that reminds you that we're not here forever than sitting at the bedside of somebody. Mm. And you've done it twice. It's really weird. Death is a really strange thing, leveller in some respects, because you you think that once you've kind of encountered it once, that you kind of you're not going to feel the same way as you did the first time. But I think with each death you encounter, whether it be someone that's immediate to you or someone that is extended family or whatever, sometimes it kind of shocks you just how different your kind of grief and your reaction to it is. Even when you think, oh, yeah, I've got this down. I've got this cold grief thing down. And then you kind of, you know, you'll be going to like a funeral and and it'll be someone, maybe someone you don't even know that well. And then all of a sudden you're overwhelmed with this, you know, these feelings that just kind of hit you like a brick sort of thing, you know, and it's a, it's a very surreal experience. Yeah, I know exactly how you feel that I've dealt with the death of my partner, I've dealt with the death of my mother, and just recently my sister's husband died and I had to tell various members of the family about this and they didn't know that he'd been ill and you were dealing with their shock. And I thought, I can do this. You know, I'm a trained professional. I can do this. And just suddenly out of nowhere, all this pain hit me and I was sort of breaking up as I was making those telephone calls. It was just a complete surprise. And I think you're so right. 
I don't think we ever get grief down. It has the ability to forever surprise us, but also forever to teach us something. And I think that's what's interesting, is it seems to have taught you something. Yeah, because I think the thing is, is the first time round, I was a young man, arguably not even a man at all, coming out of boyhood into being a man. And so my kind of coping mechanisms for it were to kind of tough my way through it, if that makes any sense. So it was kind of like, right, definitely. I'm not going to go off the rails. I'm going to like make sure that I've got all of this down and to everyone, everything's cool and stuff. But then you're kind of like, you're bubbling underneath the surface sort of thing. And somewhere, somehow that's kind of, kind of come out. I mean, fortunately, I wasn't into party and I wasn't into drugs and booze. When I was growing up, I was into sport and cycling a lot. So I had that healthy outlet for it. But I've lived more of my life without my mum around than I have with her around. So that obviously affects a young man and it affects any person. But I think the second time around with dad, I was a lot older. I'd learned from some of the bottling up that I'd done the first time around that actually it was all right to show that I wasn't okay. And it, and, and I had a lot better kind of infrastructure, if you like, around me and support structure in place that I could talk to people. And, you know, also I had my own kids as well. So I was talking to my, particularly my eldest daughter, she had an understanding that that granddad had gone and stuff. So, so yes, the the situation was different the kind of second time round. And I won't say I was more prepared for it, but I had a little bit more wisdom under my hat in order to deal with it in a more healthy way, I would say. But you were still an orphan. And that is a very big thing, whatever age you are. And actually to lose both parents before you're the age of 40 is really quite young. You must have felt or did you feel alone in the world in some kind of way? I did, but I think that I've always had, like, my dad would always used to say, you know, you know, no matter how bad things are, there's always someone that's worse off with you. And he did have that way of being able to put stuff into perspective. And I'll never forget, I think in the eulogy that I said at his funeral, funny enough, I referenced the fact that, you know, he had an innate understanding of the human condition, I think I would call it. And he was able to sort of look at things that you know maybe were happening in places like syria or iraq or whatever and say look that whole family has been wiped out by a missile attack to put things into perspective so i did have that perspective but i i never felt like i never kind of felt hard done by i was upset and obviously for the anyone that's lost anyone you'll know that that three to four maybe three to six maybe months afterwards it, it, every time you, every morning you wake up, you feel like it's kind of like a living hell, like you're waking up to a kind of nightmare scenario sort of thing. But I never felt like I was any worse off than anyone. In fact, maybe that was my way of dealing with it that I kind of often thought, well, there are, there are a lot of other people who have got it a lot worse off than I have right now. So you talk in the Guild of Dads about the importance of having tools, resources, and ideas. What do you think were the tools, resources, and ideas you were lacking at this point? I didn't really have an idea of what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. And I didn't understand the kind of concept of brotherhood and being around other guys and being able to share stuff with other guys and because I'd not really been in that environment. So I think I'd probably fallen into what has been described as a kind of lone wolf fallacy where I think in the kind of modern world, we've all grown up with these people like James Bond and Indiana Jones and these guys that kind of take on the world by themselves. But in actual fact, I've 
learned over the last probably five to six years and also from interviewing a number of different guests on my own podcast that in actual fact men have existed in tribes and and groups for millennia and what is the problem at the moment for a lot of guys i think is that a lot of that kind of support structure has been has been kind of stripped away so we're not talking about stuff with other guys we're not getting the accountability and the support of other guys and as i began to develop i was in an environment where i was working with other guys to improve myself they were also improving themselves and in different areas so you had this kind of unity and you had this kind of camaraderie that i'd never really kind of experienced but also you know i began to learn things and and, and the more i began to learn things and learn about myself the more i got a lot more confident and a lot more i think confident in my own skin is probably the word to use i didn't feel like i had to solve all the world's problems but i just felt that i had the capacity to do things that I didn't ever think I could do. Do you think sometimes men or we men are our own worst enemy? Because when we open up, the reaction of other guys is to joke because it touches something deep inside when you see another man open up and show the vulnerability because sometimes we're frightened of showing our own vulnerability. And so rather than supporting each other, we tend to push each other away a little bit. Do you find that yourself? Yeah, I think I think the problem is the modern man has become, I talk about the man in the mirror concept quite a lot, which is where you look in the mirror and you look at the man that you were kind of meant to be or the man that you could be or the man you're destined to be. Right, so tell us about the man you're destined to be. <laughs> I think a lot of guys... No, let's not talk about a lot of guys. Let's talk about you. What yeah. do you... Well, I think for me, if you look at my situation, I would look in the mirror and think deep down I had, as I was growing up, I, I knew that I had the capacity to do things. I knew there were certain things that I was good at. I was good at English. I was good at talking to people. I was good at kind of conversation and I enjoyed being around people. So was I one of the activities I did was write my life story. I began to kind of piece together these kind of clues and I and I think for me, I would look in the mirror and I would and I would think actually, that's what I could be, but in actual fact, it's a lot easier to stay as I am. It's comfortable. It's safe. It's something I know. I won't get ridiculed for st sticking my head above the parapet, and because everyone else is doing it, it's okay. And and this is what. I think I found to be the case and I think that it's precipitated by an event or time so it could be that you reach a point in your life where you think actually this is not working out I need to radically change stuff or it could be a divorce a bereavement having a serious health scare that just it's almost smacks you around the face and wakes you up if that makes any sense. That is the most important moment. I mean, in the hero's journey, that idea that we have a call to action and, you know, you set off on an adventure. But in all the good movies, often the call to action is refused and you try and actually double down and do your old life, but just work harder at your old life. And that is the moment. That's the moment to be really scared of, because in my experience, that's the moment you do something really stupid. Hmm. For example, 
you start drinking too much, you have an affair, you start driving the car too fast because you can't make the life you're living work. And so you start trying to feel good or distract yourself from it rather than listening to that original call, however frightening it might be, actually sticking in where you're going is even more frightening. Yeah. And you've got to reach the point where you truly believe that staying where you are is the worst of all options. Yeah. So how did you get to that point where you said, I have to change and I'm not going to stick with this stuckness, this lack of meaning? The easy answer to that is that the pain of where I was was becoming more so than than the pain of facing down where I wanted to go. What was the pain of staying where you were? It was just this feeling of I'm giving half measures. I'm not reaching my kind of full potential. I'm, I've got a lot more to give and I've not really explored myself or the world around me and, and fully kind of got to grips with the kind of richness of life or stretch myself or actually seen what my kind of true capabilities are. And what was the reaction of your wife to all of this? Because I could imagine that she might be terrified that you're going to, if you want to see what the world has got to offer, you're going to be going off up Timbuktu and bye-bye. Was she worried? Yeah, she's, she was kind of, there was quite a bit of trepidation. And, 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 I, and I talk about this in, in an e-book that I've, that I've written, the concept of saboteurs. And I think that the problem many face, including myself, is that on an unconscious level with the people around you, they look at what you're doing and it reflects back at them and it reflects back at their own insecurities and because they're kind of concerned about, well, what happens if they go off and do this or what happens if they go off and do that? And and why aren't I enough for you? Yeah, yeah. And and trying to kind of get across to your spouse, specifically your spouse, that it's not about them, it's about you, is is not an easy thing to do. And I think that one of the most disheartening things for anyone going through a period of personal change is that the people around them aren't always fully on board. And that is quite a lonely place. It's a bit like being cast out to sea without a paddle and then the wind getting up from sort of gale force five to hurricane levels and actually thinking, well, actually, there's no one around me now. I'm I'm a bit alone here sort of thing. And I think that's where the kind of brotherhood, you know, and having people around you on a similar journey, I think that's where it really comes into its own because they get it. They know what you're going through. They know that you might not have everyone on board. But I think for a lot of people, not having those around you fully on board is really kind of quite heartbreaking. It is tough. It is tough. So what are the other saboteurs beyond your nearest and dearest and all the people you love? <laughs> well, I think you are going to encounter saboteurs in your extended family could be saboteurs, your work colleagues, maybe parents, you know, and the typical things are, like you said, am I not enough? So they'll, they'll try and make it about them or it will be, why can't you just be satisfied? Why can't you just be like everyone else? And another one is a lot more overt than that. And it's actually not saying anything at all. So they know that you might be running a marathon or they know that you might be producing a weekly podcast or they, might, they know that you might be doing some different things, but they don't ask you about it. It's almost like you're 
new things that you're doing are non-existent because to talk to you about it gives validation to what you're doing and they don't want to validate what you're doing because it's a threat to them but can the biggest saboteur of all be yourself of course yeah 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 and i think this is this is the kind of paradox of it all and where the you know where the man in the mirror concept really comes into play because i think that looking at the man in the mirror we've like you said you've got two choices you either revert back to your kind of old life and i hate to call it a life of mediocrity because it's not a life of mediocrity it's there's a better word for that it's often a life that other people think you should live you know mm. your mother your father think this would be a great life and so you do it society and uncle tom cobley says if you've got your own business a wife and two children you're doing very nicely thank you so don't ask for anything more mm. i'll try this one out on you joe if you don't have a life plan if you're listening to this program now and you don't have a life plan, you're actually living the plan of somebody else. It could be that teacher at school that said, oh, you'd make a great gymnast, and therefore now you're a gym teacher. It could be your father. It could be your mother. It could be your partner. But if you're not actually living your own life, you're probably living somebody else's. And if your father wants to do something, he can do it for himself. Mm. This is your life. We don't need another version of your father. We don't need another version of your gym teacher. We need you. We need this wonderful creation called Joe. We don't yeah. actually need Dad Mark II or Mum Mark II. Yeah. That is really difficult to get. If you're not leading your own life, you're not on your own journey, you're on somebody else's journey. Mm. And I think it's difficult for guys like me and other guys of my age and in my situation to articulate it. And I think that is why so many end up taking the route of self-medication and what I would call sedating themselves. What happens, I think, is that I call it the barbecue story. So you go to a barbecue in the summer and you have a chat with your mate Dave and you say, how's things going, Dave? And he goes, yeah, it's going really well. Uh, we just got back from, I don't know, whatever holiday I've been to. I've got a new car. The kids are doing well at school. But something feels like it's kind of missing. And I could work more hours, but that's not the answer to it because then that's going to impact on my family life. But something feels like it's kind of missing. And I should probably lose a few pounds of weight. And I'm conscious of my weight because my mum's got diabetes or my uncle's just passed away of a heart attack or whatever. So all of a sudden, it's like this perfect storm of money isn't going to solve the problems. They're realising that they're not immortal. But there's this feeling, but they don't know what it is. From my point of view... When I started to kind of create a vision, I kind of looked back and I was like, well, this is slightly analytical, but I looked back and I was like, so how have I began to find meaning? And I kind of reverse engineered it and thought, well, hang on a minute, I'm living a life that I've began to create a vision around. So I'm being deliberate in how I want to lead my life, but I had to take action in order to do that. And this is where the kind of tagline for Guild of Dads comes from, vision plus action equals meaning. To explain that, first of all, you start with the vision, then you take action on that vision, and the meaning comes from the journey. It's not like a fixed point of reference where you say, well, actually, I visualized something, I'm going to start going towards it, and by getting to it, I'm going to get meaning. It's the process of learning about yourself and experiencing it and going on the journey. That's where the meaning begins to flourish. So give us an example of a vision that we could end up having. Yeah, so you could say, for instance, the, the beautiful thing about vision plus action equals meaning, 
is that it works on a micro level and a macro level. So you could have like a big life goal that you want to, I don't know, for argument's sake, you want to start a new business helping people to start their own business, for instance, okay? Okay. So you start off with this, you know, this plan as to what you want to do. Then you begin to make, you know, your business plan. Then you begin to build your audience, find customers, start to monetize it, and you're and you're doing what you enjoy doing. And going on that process of learning all these different steps to get to that end point of of your goal, it's meaningful because it's it's your own personal journey that you've crafted. It's one hundred percent you're doing. But also, that's that's an example on a kind of macro level. But we are making vision, action, meaning decisions on a kind of daily basis and on a micro level a garden shed i want a new i want to erect a garden shed in my garden so you envision building your garden shed you go and get all the tools for it you order it in you start to assemble it you put it up the walls go up the roof goes on it you felt the roof and then you stand back and you think i've done a really good job there and there's a satisfaction from it you get satisfaction there's a purpose there's a fulfillment to what you've done and it also feels meaningful. But you've actually got to make each of the steps meaningful because actually if the only meaning is when you finally see it up, that's a very short moment. Each of those steps of researching it, buying the tools, putting it up, learning how to put the felt on is meaningful. If you see it that way, rather than just thinking about the final goal of it. And I think that's a really important idea that the vision each step of it is part of the meaning, not just reaching the goal. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I call that the meaning equation, vision plus action equals meaning, which is quite a simple thing for people to kind of remember, but it's also kind of quite powerful because you can apply it, like I say, you can apply it to very small things that you're doing, but also quite big things that you want to embark upon as well. So why Guild of Dads rather than Guild of Men? (laughs) The reason it was Guild of Dads is because, obviously, I'm a dad myself. I think that a lot of the things that I have gone through in my life, I've gone through as a dad, losing my own dad. That particular year, 2015, when I lost dad, it was a year where we had a massive business debt that threatened to sink our second-generation family business. My eldest daughter is autistic. And I'd be lying if I said that periods in my life I haven't gone through relationship difficulties myself and my wife. I I challenge married people to say that they've not had ups and downs in their marriage. I will join that club as well. So, Uh, Despite how fine and dandy it may look from the outside. But that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) But I think there is a difference between going through it as a man and going through it as a dad. Because I think, and this is something that men are very good at, we're very good at focusing down on something thing and shutting everything out and you know i'm just going to build that shed no matter what but actually if you're a father you've actually got to consider your children as well so you can't just do that narrow vision you've got to somehow come up with something that's going to support your children and actually allow you to achieve your goals too so i think you're onto something I think there is a difference between being a man and being a dad. What do you think? I agree because a lot of the experience I have with the kids frames a lot of the kind of content and a lot of the thinking that I have behind Guild of Dads. I mean, ultimately, kids are your greatest teacher because they are a reflection of yourself. They will often mirror your 
your emotions, your expressions, the way you react to different situations. And quite often, if if mum and dad's mood is low or high, it will be reflected in how the children are. I, I interviewed a very interesting guy called Ed Tronic, who is who developed the still face experiment. And up until a certain point in history, people thought that the interaction between parent and child was very much kind of one way. But the still face experiment was basically where a mother is being all happy and smiling and engaging with the with a baby and then all of a sudden stops and just goes still faced, very stone faced. And the baby is trying to get mum's attention and all of a sudden the baby starts to get kind of quite distressed because there is no reaction from the mother. And that underlines a very important principle. And that principle is that children and young people and babies very much pick up on when parents are absent or whether they're not fully engaged. And one of the biggest challenges of our time is parents are physically present, but they're mentally absent. Oh, that's a good one. Let's just let's just say that again. You're physically present, but mentally absent. Mm. Now, how often do you think dads do that? A lot. And we are all guilty of it. I don't hold myself out to be a bastion of perfection in this in this realm. But we know that physically absent fathers have I, if a father is absent from from the parenting role, that has a negative effect. We know that children of fathers who are alcoholics or drug addicts, that has a negative effect. And what we're experiencing now is parents and fathers, a lot of the time through technology, they are physically present but mentally absent. I do a workshop called Facing the Father Wound, and I have a large group of men, sometimes like 50 or 60 men, and we identify the kinds of fathers there might be, and they join these tribes of other men who have this kind of father. And can you guess which, when we put it down, I can always tell, because I, what I, I put them on large sheets of paper, and so they go and join and they make a, like a a camp around that name. And I always know where this particular one is because there's more sons there than around any of the other father words. Can you guess what the most common father wound is? The father that just ignores their children. The distant father. Mm. You know, the absent father, that one's quite busy as well. And unfortunately, the critical father is there as well. And the, the man that must be king father, ruler of the world father, but the one that is the most common is the distant father. I mean, it is a, an epidemic. You know, most men are underfathered and overmothered, and we need our fathers. It's really important that you are consciously there. So it's, you know, one of the reasons why I applaud the work that you're doing. So what have you learned from all the guests? Give me one example of something that you've learned that you didn't know before from doing your podcast. That's a very, very, very good question. One of the things that I learned actually, funnily enough, very recently was around talking to your kids about sex and sex education, which surprised me because I had some preconceptions around it. And I spoke to a lady called Robin Pickering, who is a is an expert in this from the Whitworth University in uh, Washington State in the US. She's written a book called The Birds and the Bees. But we spoke about a number of things, particularly around kind of gender and also about how you talk to your kids about sex and sex education and that kind of stuff. And quite quickly, I realized that one of the myths that we've been telling ourselves about 
you know, parents typically think, well, if I talk to my kids about it more, they're going to be more interested in it and they're going to be more likely to engage in it. And in actual fact, I found out the actual truth was a complete opposite of that. So that blew quite a few of my preconceptions out of the, out of the water. Some of the most influential people that I've spoken to recently or the people that have had the biggest impact on me have been around the idea of men and women being very different in the way they interact, in the way they are. And it's kind of framed a lot of my thinking around how we're moving towards a kind of homogenization of men and women at the moment and a kind of demonization of men in some respects. And like I said to a guest of mine yesterday, a guy called John Eldridge, who's written the book uh, Wild at Heart, my motivation and the motivation of a lot of dads and men who are doing what I do is not to kind of pit men and women against each other, but in actual fact, to build better men so that men can show up to their relationships, to their children, to the world on their A game, which benefits mother and father relationships, benefits the family unit, benefits the community and the wider society. And, and if I and other guys can help men to do that, that has got to be a good thing in society right now because I think there is a there is a bit of a role model crisis going on right now. So you're starting something called the Dad Circle. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the Dad Circle is basically going to be a, a membership group which is not on kind of Facebook or social media or any kind of Facebook groups. It's going to be separate from a Facebook group. And it is very much a place where there will be a community of dads who are looking to improve themselves in a kind of number of areas but also have the support of other guys along the way and what it is going to look like is there will be monthly topics that we can work on collectively to grow and develop in different areas there'll be weekly zoom calls so you can get on a call with other guys talk through your kind of plan i've developed a system within a free ebook that I have called the VAM Blueprint, which stands for Vision Action Meaning, which basically systemizes a number of different areas that dads can work on. It goes through chapter and verse how you can develop your own vision, how you can kind of write your eulogy, which sounds morbid, but in actual fact, it's a very powerful thing to do. But we work the system that I lay out in the VAM Blueprint ebook. And the idea is, is that we will have a community of guys who are all working together to kind of improve themselves. There's a kind of a common aim, a common objective that guys can help each other. So if there's, if there's a guy going through some marital difficulties, for instance, other guys can give them the benefit of what they know. If there's a guy who's out of shape and he needs some help on his, on his physical fitness, he can get some help from the other guys in the group and stuff. So it's very much... We're going back to kind of first world methods, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you're building a tribe. Yes, yeah. And in a tribe, different people have different skills, and it's okay to ask other people for help. Yeah. I know it's yeah. a revolutionary idea, but it is. Yeah, and I think the thing is, is men and societies existed in tribes for thousands of years, and the way in which tribes worked was that people would learn new skills and they'd help each other and they'd help the tribe as a whole. And, you know, if someone was 
suffering in the tribe or someone was going through difficulties that, that you know they'd they'd pull them up and they'd help them along and we've lost we've, we've yeah. lost that and we're and i think we're much more likely to compete with each other rather than support each other yeah and i th- i'm the best I, I often battle with a few people that try and oversimplify suicide and suicidal ideation particularly on men's groups and it's very much simplified along the lines of well it's because men don't talk and in actual fact there is some truth in that Often men don't talk for a very good reason, and the same as women don't talk for a very good reason. And I'll give you an example of this. I go on a Facebook group of mine. I, I, I comment. I made a post about this very topic of men not expressing themselves and whatever. And my point was that often men don't express themselves for very good reasons, and women as well. And this guy messaged me in confidence, and he said, "Look, I don't talk." because I was abused when I was younger. And the idea of that, and there is a very good reason if someone's been abused or if they've gone through trauma uh, or if they've gone through horrible experiences, they're not going to want to talk about that. But the idea that someone can actually label that as toxic masculinity is possibly one of the most abhorrent things that someone could say to someone in that position. It sounds a really wonderful idea, the dad circle. And I think we're very much on the same page because I'm putting together a supporters club for this particular podcast so that you can be with other people who are looking for a meaningful life. And there'll be details of that at the end of the program. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Now, if you join our supporters club, one of the advantages are that you're allowed to send in letters for me to discuss with the other witnesses on uh, my podcast. And my witness today is Joe, Joe Horton, who's behind the Guild of Dads podcast. And we've got this letter, Joe. My girlfriend of two and a half years and I moved in together about six months ago. Our relationship was the best it's ever been. Then she told me she was spending the night at a friend's, but after going out, it felt suspicious. The next morning she called me and told me she had cheated with a guy that I'd talked to her about and warned her about flirting with him. Unfortunately, the first story was bad, but as the weeks went by, I found out more. She tells me they didn't have sex, and I'm sure it would hurt more if they did, but the damage on trust has been done. We're trying to work through things, but she says she can't remember how it was initiated at the guy's house. He's a friend from work. She's told me everything from the flirty texts and how they started, all the details of going out that night, riding on the guy's moped back to his house, me calling her that night, and most of what happened, some parts I didn't want to know, and when she stopped it. So basically everything, and I'm grateful it's all out in the open, but she says she can't remember how the situation started that night at the guy's house. It's really bugging me not knowing, mainly because she's trickled out information beforehand. I guess I'm insecure she might be suppressing something because she fears the shame, but I just want to know so we can start moving on. Could she be suppressing the memory and actually not to know? 
What do you make of this one, Joe? Hmm, it's interesting, this one. Very interesting. The first things that kind of jumped out at me was that he has the feeling that something isn't right when she goes out on the night out, which suggests that something was afoot or being planned or kind of premeditated, which to me would say that suppressing the memory, I would say more accurately, is selective memory loss, I think. I think there is an element where she knows full well what's happened. I suspect it's been premeditated. She's felt some guilt over it, come clean with him, and then thought, actually, maybe I'll kind of rein this back in a bit, and maybe I've said too much, and I'm going to say a little bit less. That was my initial reaction when I saw the letter. (laughs) And he's got himself into a really difficult place, He loves his girlfriend, but he doesn't trust her. How do you get the trust back? I think in any situation like this, whether it be a physical affair or whether it be gambling, depression, doing something that you shouldn't have done with money, you are never going to possibly know what the full extent of it was. And he said that there are certain details that have come out, certain details that he doesn't want to know, but obviously it's bugging him that she's maybe being a bit disingenuous about how it actually happened and whether it was premeditated or not. But in terms of the trust thing, I think that it's there's two options on this. You can either say, well, okay, you made a mistake and I'm going to trust that you won't make that mistake again in the future and we're going to address the reasons why you made that mistake as a couple and move forward. Or he has to think about whether or not he can go forward in the relationship with it having happened. Because I think the two of them have been focused on, you know, what actually happened. You know, we've Mm. been re-putting together the events of the night in question, Mm. I say sounding a bit like a policeman. But actually, I'm much more interested in something actually deeper down than this. Why was his girlfriend unhappy enough to want to flirt with somebody? What is the itch down there that is making her do those things which probably are against her values. There's something deeper down. It might be her. In fact, I'm sure it's about her. There's going to be some elements about their relationship. And this sort of it's the best it's been feels like a a way of putting the lid on these deeper things and they're not actually being examined. And it's not just do you trust her, but actually why did she cheat? That is, I think, the key question because that is going to tell you a lot about the viability of this relationship going forward. And I think he's been focusing too much on the what and not enough on the why. Hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that it's it's almost in what he's not said rather than what he has said. And, And I detected that there may be a kind of nice guy thing going down here. Tell me about the nice guy thing. (laughs) So for those that don't know, there's a book written by a guy called Dr. Robert Glover, and the book is called No More Mr. Nice Guy. I've interviewed him before. He's a very nice guy, and he won't like me saying that. But but essentially a nice guy is somebody that, that he will have everything he want in life, provided he does everything that other people expect of him. And quite often it will be a case that nice guys will get tested by their partners. And quite often nice guys have is they have a kind of 
they're not that confident in themselves. They're not that confident in getting their own needs met. They kind of it can become quite passive aggressive, supplicative, and they do what their partner wants in a relationship or what they think their partner wants because often they don't actually know because they've never actually asked yes and this kind of comes part and parcel with a number of different behaviors one of which is kind of covert contracts which is i will do this on the basis that somebody is going to do something for me but the person that you're doing it for doesn't know that there's an expectation that you're meant to be do something in return so there's a whole host of behaviors that go with nice guy but to me, it jumped out that her not being fully upfront with what's happened is almost coming across as a fitness test. What are you going to do about it? You know, and I think that his reaction, a lot is going to hinge on his reaction. And at the moment, it sounds like he's being a bit cool about it, when in actual fact, there's some tough questions that he probably needs to be asking, if you know what I mean. He's asking tough questions, but the wrong tough questions. It's how did you feel mm. there? What did you do there? And actually, I think he needs to look more at how he feels, because I think there's a lot of anger there that isn't coming out until the anger comes out. You're not going to really know how you feel about this. You're blocking it down with that, I love her, she's a wonderful woman, I'm so lucky to have her. And you're not actually looking inside to see how you feel. And so I would like you to take the focus off your girlfriend and actually put it down into your guts. What do you want? What do you feel? Where are you going with your life? I think those are far better questions than how did you get into this situation? Don't care. What I care about is how you feel. So if you'd like to send a, a letter in to talk to us, find out at the end more about joining our supporters club. Joe, we've had you on this program to be a witness to what makes meaningful lives. I'd like to ask what makes your life meaningful? What makes my life meaningful is having clarity over what I want to be doing and how I want to show up in the world. For me, uh, what that looks like right now in my life is helping other guys on their journey, using my own experience to help other guys, to learn about myself and be able to pass that knowledge on to other dads as they kind of go on their journey. The, the podcast gives me a lot of satisfaction and, and purpose. The people that I speak to are incredible on it. And I learn a massive amount about myself and about the world around me that I didn't already know, which I can hopefully use to benefit other dads as they follow Guild of Dads in their own journeys and also the dad circle mastermind that we've got coming up. So, Because looking through your list of guests, you've had some very good people. I think there's somebody called Andrew G. Marshall on that list of yes. people. Yes, I did have Andrew G. Marshall on that list of people. And he was a gentleman that framed a lot of my thinking around this subject. So I'm, I'm going to be eternally grateful to him for quite a period of time on this. So there is also at the back of my my mind in the future there is a book that i feel that i need to write and which won't surprise listeners of andrew's podcast and mine to know that it will be around the subjects of meaning and bringing that subject bang up to date in the it's the current day so to speak actually something we haven't really talked about but actually men across different generations 
being together and supporting each other is really useful because, you know, I'm 20 years older than you. I'm probably about the sort of age that your father might have been if he was still here. And actually, it's really important that you have men of all different ages in your in your life and that it's really important to reach out to different generations and you can have mentors as well as dads. So, Joe, thank you very much for being on the Meaning of Life podcast here. This is where we're going to say goodbye to to Joe for people who are not members of our supporters club. But if you want to hear us sort of unpick this interview and find out what I've learned, what he's learned, and the three things he knows to be true in this world, join our supporters club. You'll find out details about that coming up in just a second. But Joe, thank you very much for being with me on the podcast today and good continuing luck with your podcast. Thank you. And it's a privilege being invited to come on here. Thank you very much, Andrew. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.